0: All right, well, as we get ready to get into this morning, I kind of just want to say up front really clearly where we're heading, all right? So really, in a lot of ways, this whole message could just be summarized by, um, let's, let's be thankful for this book right here. Uh, this, this is the word of God. This Bible is, it's God-breathed. And I'm not gonna get into all of this this morning, but it's kind of miraculous that we're holding this. Like if we really were to trace through history what it has taken for faithful people to, um, to shepherd this, to steward it, to faithfully bring it through time, to transcribe it, um, to record it and re-record it, to translate it into languages that we can read, to fight for freedoms, that we could stand here and hold this and have one of these in every home and hold it in our lap, and now look at it on our phone or on a screen, um, it's kind of miraculous. And so really, this morning, as we kind of move into part two of our series on faith, um, I want to talk about the power of this book to guide us, and, and the influence that it has, but also to remind us we're not following words on a page. This book points to someone. And so, yes, I honor and treasure and am grateful for the word of God, but it is, it is pointing me towards the living God that I can know and walk with. And so that's where we're heading this morning is talking about that. Um, my hope is that we would be strengthened in our faith to be able to take God's word for what it is and what it says and follow him on the journey of this life. That's it. That's my hope this morning. And so let's pray and invite him to come guide us into that, that he may make this come alive in us. He, he calls it the living word, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we invite you to come one more time and, and make this word come alive in us. God, I, I pray that um, where we have struggles, fears, doubts, worries, God, where we we live in a day, and really each age does this to a degree, but God, we live in a day that is uh, diminishing and undermining your word and diminishing and undermining believing in you and following you as our creator, as our king, as our good, loving father, Jesus, as our savior and Lord. God, you come as both. You save us so we can know you and follow you. And so God, I just pray that um, we would find renewed strength and vision this morning to walk with you. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so last week we kind of kicked the series off. I have no idea why I feel this way, but it was just a struggle for me last Sunday. I think that was evident to a lot of you guys. I'm grateful for your prayers. Man, I just had a, had a hard morning. I don't know what the deal was. I'm, I'd like to just blame it on I lost an hour of sleep because we sprung forward, but I think it was more than that. But um, my hope is that what, what was communicated as we launched into this series on faith is this really simple idea that number one, we're on a journey home that God made this world and he created it, but man, it's fallen, it's broken, and life is hard, but God is calling us home and we're on a journey towards home and it takes faith. There are just times where we don't see clearly, we don't fully understand what's going on, but we can believe that God is calling us and inviting us home. And then what we really explored last Sunday was the idea that before we even take the first step of faith, God already has some faith for us. We find him present. He believes things that we don't believe yet. He sees things that we don't see yet. And he's calling us and inviting us to come as we are, to bring our doubts, our struggles, our worries, to wrestle those through with him. And ultimately he's inviting us to believe that he is with us and that he is for us and that we can trust him. And so we looked at that by exploring the story of Gideon when he was called out of the cave by God. And the story ends, that portion of the story ends with the one kind of action point for Gideon. After having that encounter with God and wrestling some things through with him, the invitation from God was, will you tear down some idols and trust me instead? And so we finished by just saying, as we we take our step of faith to follow him, there might be some old ways of thinking that are obstacles that get in our way. And I don't just mean that from the standpoint of choosing to trust Jesus for the first time in your life. I mean that as a follower of Jesus, I become aware in my own heart of things that get in the way that, I, that uh, block me from hearing his voice and following him. And I acknowledged last Sunday, control is one that he's been working on in me. Control has been an idol in my life. I, I wanna run things and trust my own instincts. And, and he's calling me to lay that down and trust him. And so that's kind of where we were at last week. So this Sunday, we're gonna pick back up in Hebrews chapter 11 again. I'm going to read verse one once again, and, and then we're going to move into verses two and three as well. Um, kind of our, our overarching verse for this series, though, is we walk by faith, not by sight in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And so that's, that's kind of our vantage point. There's an element of our dirt journey with Jesus where there's things we just don't quite see, but he's calling us to walk by faith, not by sight. So here we go. We ready? Y'all with me? Yes? Awesome. That's great. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All right, we're going to camp out right there for a minute. So first of all, verse 1, what what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that we need vision. We, We need an aim. We need a direction. We need something to look towards that causes us to move forward in life towards some goal some objective. He's, he's communicating that on some level, we all know there is something missing that we're striving for. And I, I think whether we would call ourselves Christians or not, or believe in the Bible or not, we're aware that things are not as they could be. And so on this earth, people want things to be better. And so we think about change. We strive for change. We uh, we imagine things that that could cause us to progress forward and get better. We we do that in our personal lives. Um, we we do that in our conversations within our community and our larger society. We we play that out even culturally, like here in the United States. And and there's debates about what's progress and what isn't, and what change would be good and what change would be bad. But. There is this hunger in the human heart to see things improve and get better. We strive for change. Here's the problem. There's a really big flaw involved when we view change as progress. Change is not progress. It's just change. It's just different. Change can be good, Change can be neutral. It can just kind of be a lateral move, just shuffling deck chairs. Change can be bad. We can make things worse if we change. It's only progress if our change has an aim. If I I know what the ideal is, what the goal is, then change is progress. And actually, it's still only progress is if the aim is right. If the aim is wrong, it's not progress. I'm heading somewhere, but it might not be the right place. And so what can happen, I, I believe this is very real in our, our society. Listen, life is hard enough as just a dude trying to live right. Life is hard enough when I'm aiming right and still missing. I, I mean, I live there. <laughs> my, if, if we need to, my family could get up and come give some examples real fast, I'm sure. If I'm aiming right, life is hard enough because I missed the mark. But man, for so many in our world, we're just completely aimless. There is no aim. We're just stumbling through. And, And then there are others who, out of this deep desire to see things improve and get better, we aim at the wrong things. And so maybe we're even hitting the target, but it's taking us off track. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is in the midst of an aimless generation or in the midst of a generation aiming at the wrong things, we've got to learn how to aim. And so the good news is the writers of Hebrews gives us some answers here of how we can aim. First of all, the first thing he's saying here in verse one is faith admits our blindness. He's saying there are things we can't see. And so faith acknowledges, it's hard for me to aim right. That requires humility. I mean, you will hear this theme come up over and over again when you hear me preaching. Man, humility is like one of the core starting points of acknowledging he's God and I'm not. There's things I can't see. There's things I don't understand. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we admit our blindness, but then look at this. He doesn't leave us hanging there. He then says, so we look towards what we cannot see in search of vision. He actually says, yeah, we have blindness, so let's acknowledge it. But now let's look beyond what we can see to what we can't see for vision. Now that sounds weird and strange. And so thankfully, he continues by telling us how can we aim at something that we can't see, all right? So check this out, verse two. He talks about these people of old who have earned their commendation. What he's saying is we can learn to aim by looking back to those who've gone before us. We can look back to our elders. We can learn from past generations to aim rightly. Secondly, in verse three, he says, we can learn to aim by looking at the unseen that sits behind the scene. He says the universe was formed by the word of God. It was created and made, the scene was created and made by that which is not seen. And so he says, actually, pay attention to what you can see and recognize that it's pointing you to something. This natural world is pointing us to something that lies behind it. The natural world cries out, intelligent design, creator. It points to that. And so he says, pay attention to that. So look, look back to our elders. Look at the world God has given us and recognize it declares something that's hidden behind it. And then ultimately, he says, we can learn to aim by listening to the very word of God. We have the word of God in Jesus and written in, in this book right here, put down pen to paper. This is a declaration of the living God who created the world by his very word. And so ultimately we look to the word that, that spoke the world into being to now give us direction. Now, if you think about that, you have to choose whether or not you believe it. But if you think about it, it makes sense if there is a creator and designer who spoke this world into being, should we not look to him to figure out how maybe we're supposed to live in this world? Who we are, how he made us, how this world works? In fact, if he tells us, even even he's honest with us and says it is broken and there are some things wrong, but here's what I'm doing to make it right. And here's how you can navigate life as I'm redeeming this world. And so we look to him. So this morning, our primary focus is gonna be on that third thing, that we look to God's word for faith, for guidance, for an aim. But I wanna briefly address the other two. I don't wanna just blow past them completely. So first of all, two quick notes on this. Number one, this idea of finding aim or vision by looking back at our elders, by by taking what has been passed on from generation to generation. Um, the idea here is simply this, like there are people who have followed God for a long time. Some of them are written in scripture. Some of them are within church history. Some of them are folks that are just, you know, a little bit older than us right now, still walking the earth. And we can learn from them. And there is a pull in our generation to be so hypercritical of not only the generation just before us, but but folks 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, that we look at them and, and how they lived and what they believed as archaic and broken and wrong. And we forget that every generation has felt that way. Every generation looks back and sees what's broken, what's wrong, mistakes that are made, and then puts itself in the position of going, but we're the progressive enlightened ones that get it. But one day, our children and our grandchildren are gonna look back at some things we said and did and believed in our culture and go, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? The truth is, there is much to be learned from our elders. I want to read to you a passage from a book called um, Orthodoxy. This is written by the late, great G.K. Chesterton. And he's talking about this idea of being able to draw from and learn from our past, even in the midst of setting our aim and progressing forward. So he says it like this. He says, it is obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. I love that quote. It is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than to some isolated or arbitrary record. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I don't know if y'all are catching all of that, but what he is saying is that. Tradition, the things that we hold to, the things that we learn from our elders, they've held on to certain practices because they were good and they were of value and they stood the test of time. And he's saying, let's not be so quick to throw all that away because the people who happen to be walking around right now feel really enlightened. Let's recognize some of the arrogance in that and humble ourselves and say, God, what might we learn? Now, if you know me, you know, I'm not this big traditionalist. I'm not this hardcore, let's just, you know, s- sit in the past and follow tradition for the sake of tradition. But there is a right approach to how we view what has been passed down from previous generations. And we should, we should approach it with humility and pay attention to the stuff that has stuck, that has lasted. The key is this the key is keeping it fresh for you and me part of where tradition goes wrong is we lose the spirit and the heart behind it. It's not the behaviors or the patterns that are broken. It's that we're just doing them out of habit instead of being filled with passion and vision and recognizing the why behind the what. So let's keep it fresh. Secondly, the second way that we address um, what we can learn from our elders is we hold what we learn from them we hold it against the very things they based it upon. So when there are wrongs, we don't go, hey, my elders did this wrong. This previous generation did this wrong. This denomination over here gets this wrong. So I'm gonna invent a completely different way of doing it to reject that wrong way. Instead, we hold that thing that might be broken and compare it to where it came from. We compare it to the word of God and we, we bring it back to correction, not heading off in a different wrong direction. Does that make sense to you guys? And so we take what we've learned from our elders. We're grateful for it. We see it fresh and alive in our lives. And then what is broken and what is wrong, we don't just swing the opposite direction because we're so frustrated with what's wrong. We align with the word of God. We align with what was behind it in the first place, okay? So let's, let's honor that. Okay, so secondly... Secondly, the natural world, the natural world points to a creator. Now I'm, I'm not getting into a whole science lesson this morning and exploring all the ways that this world points, points to God. But what I, what I want to encourage you to do um, on your own, especially if you haven't looked at this in a while, and if you've looked at it recently, you'll go, yep, I know, I know right what that's saying. But Paul writes a letter to the Romans and I want you to imagine this for a minute, okay? Because if Paul existed in our day, he would be writing this letter to the Western world, maybe even the United States of America specifically. He wrote a letter to the Romans who were the height of advancement, uh, socially, economically, it was the pinnacle All right, and he wrote to them, and in Romans chapter 1, he unpacks very specifically that there is evidence for God all around us in this world. That the creation cries out, Creator. In fact, he says, You're without excuse. If you will take note of the world that's around us, it points to Him. And then in heartbreaking fashion, he describes what takes place in a person's heart and in a society when we reject that, when we choose to live as if there's not a God behind creation. And he talks about how society then devolves. It doesn't progress forward. Its aim is wrong. Its aim has rejected God. And so in its progress, it goes backwards. And he describes a society that is broken. And I just, I challenge you to read Romans chapter one and not immediately have your heart break for the condition of our country. I I don't know how you could read it with honesty and not feel like Paul's describing us or at least where we're heading. I I think you'd have to have your head in the sand to not see that. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's saying it is so important that we aim right. Yes, Life is confusing and difficult. It's hard to see the way, but God has given us a roadmap to follow. And we can look back at our elders and learn from them and also learn from their mistakes. And we can look at the world around us and see that it cries out for a creator. And then ultimately we can thank God that we have this, that the God who spoke the world into existence gave us guidance gave us direction through his word so we can aim rightly. Amen? Is this making sense? Okay, awesome. All right, so let's continue on a little bit here. So we've been talking about our, uh, the importance of aiming rightly, and now I wanna talk to you about why God's word is, is the source for that, is the source for that. So um, you might be familiar with, with this uh, verse. Uh, the, I'm gonna kind of quote the old King James version of this. Um, for lack of vision, the people... Perish. All right, so y'all know that verse, right? For lack of vision, the people perish. We just, we know that verse. We've heard it before. That's the old King James version. Um, I want to unpack this a little bit. First of all, that word vision, it actually means prophetic word. It means prophetic word. So, not, God's not just saying in a very general sense, you need vision so you don't perish. He's saying in a very specific sense, you need God's spoken word into your life to give you direction. Now that phrase, that, that Hebrew word there that is translated vision, or in some newer translations, they, they translate prophetic word because it's a little more accurate. It gets, it gets used throughout the Old Testament. And it's always used to describe one of two things, the written word of God or a divine encounter with God, him speaking into your life. his his voice, him showing up and encountering someone face-to-face like like the angel of the Lord in Gideon last week. Um, But it's always used as God communicating to us through his written word and directly talking to our hearts. That's what this verse is saying, that without that, we suffer and die. We need the prophetic word of God spoken to us. The second word there, that that people perish, um, I do think there is a heart, there's an essence where that's accurate. But actually, really, that word means to cast off restraint. Now, I think the results of casting off restraint are clear. We do perish. But the word really means to cast off restraint. Let me give you a taste of this it means to let go, it means to ignore. It means to be loosed of restraint. So it's like an animal that's kind of thrown off its leash or its collar and is just taken off on its own. As someone who owns a dog that used to escape a lot, that's not a fun experience. And he gets himself into trouble fast. To cast off restraint, it even means to act as the leader. Not to be the leader, to act as the leader. That's all held within this word, casting off restraint. So when we stop looking to the prophetic word and we cast off restraint, it means I'm acting like the leader. I'm coming out from underneath his covering. It's translated several places in the Old Testament as being uncovered or naked. It's what Adam and Eve did. They stepped out from under his guidance and his covering and it let loose all kinds of things. Okay, so... Basically, what it means is to refuse instruction. It means to go aimlessly or aim wrongly. Like at the heart of it, it means what we've been talking about, to not have an aim. Some examples of this show up in the book of Proverbs, this idea of casting off restraint. Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. That's the same Hebrew word as casting off restraint. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 15, 32, whoever ignores, that's that word, ignores instruction, despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. So when we cast off restraint, we don't look to God for guidance and direction. It brings poverty, disgrace. We're actually despising ourselves when we do that. We don't realize how much it benefits us to listen to him and follow his direction. But when we do listen to him, it brings honor and intelligence. We grow, we learn wisdom from him. So for lack of vision, the people perish. For lack of hearing God's word, his written word, and man, him personally speaking into your heart and life. Without that, we start acting like the leader and it leads to trouble. That's what the word's saying. Now, we're not done with that, that verse. So we are so familiar with the first half of the verse, for lack of vision, the people perish. There's a second half to that verse and it is a complete thought that is meant to go together. And so let's check this out. I'm gonna read this from ESV. Instead of lack of vision, it, the ESV uses some of these other words I've been saying, prophetic vision and cast off restraint. So you'll, you'll see the difference here in translation. Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. That's the second half of the verse. And just to be really clear, that word law there, it's the word Torah. And if you're not familiar with what that means, the Torah literally is the word that's used originally just to describe the first five books of the Bible, kind of the the law of Moses. And then ultimately it grew to kind of mean or encapsulate the whole of scripture. So from, from, from when this verse was written, it would kind of be viewed to encapsulate God's word, his direction. Blessed are those, honored are those who look to the law, who look to God's word for guidance and direction. Lost, confused, headed for destruction are those who resist it or ignore it or aim differently. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, so that's where we're at here now. I just kind of wanted to say this in passing because I was talking about from a positive sense, we should look to our elders for guidance and direction. I I do just have to to give a little note here. I feel like it's sad that all too often in our church circles, we've appropriated the first half of this verse for lack of vision that people perish to create all kinds of leaders' agendas and visions of what they think should be accomplished and try to get people to get behind that vision when what the verse is actually about is learning to follow God, letting him give us direction, letting him give us vision. Now, I I believe God puts leaders in our lives, but I think ultimately he's the good shepherd and he's the one that we follow. And let's not be so quick in our pursuit to gain vision and clarity in life, to just sign up for somebody else's agenda real fast and go, hey, that person helped set the course for me. That can map over to political leaders where I'm just with that guy, that gal. That can map over to religious circles. I follow that pastor. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Peter. No, we follow Jesus Christ. And so the vision we need to have is hearing and following him. There are times where we link arms and go, hey, we see some stuff and we think we're heading in a direction together, let's go. But let's not substitute following somebody else's lead for knowing God ourselves and following him, all right? Okay, so if this is the call to follow the word of God, the the logical question that should be sort of hovering over all this is, can I trust the word of God? I mean, I I hope that's something that comes to your mind. If I'm saying, read this, follow this, the the natural question is, can I trust what's written here? Should I really base my life on this? What about the things that are confusing, complicated, that I feel like I disagree with? What do I do with that? And so I, I wanna give us a little bit of a firm footing, okay? So I wanna encourage you, this is not a message that can explore or cover all of these areas, But I wanna encourage you that if you do some leaning in, if you do some listening, some research, some reading, man, you will discover some incredible ways that we can trust and lean upon what we've got right here. Okay, so first of all, history. History supports the word of God. In fact, there have been times where historians have said, see, it doesn't because the Bible talks about this group of people that exist and we have no historical record of that. For example, they did that for the Hittites for a long time. They said, man, there's no evidence anywhere that any people ever called the Hittites existed. And they're talked about prominently in different places throughout the Old Testament. So obviously that's wrong. Until about 75 years ago, they uncovered an archeological dig that showed, oh, yep, actually the Hittites do exist. They did exist. There's the record of their existence. And it confirmed the word of God. We see characters like, Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus of Persia that are confirmed as historical figures in history that line up with the word of God. There there are things potentially that have not been discovered yet, but never has any historical thing been discovered that contradicted what the word of God said. History supports it. Kind of along the lines of that, archaeology supports it. Um, You might be familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, this really cool discovery that happened in the last century. And what was amazing about it is when they uncovered these texts, some of them like thousands of years old, what they found there matched to 95% accuracy the Old Testament we're holding today. Now you might be going, well, 5%'s a lot. That 5% added up to grammatical and spelling errors. It wasn't stories that were missing Verses that weren't there or things that had been added. It was just clerical errors that had developed over a thousand years. The New Testament was even more accurate. It was 99.5% accurate. Again, the only difference is being small grammatical spelling errors. Archaeology has supported that the word of God has been faithfully kept over time. Prophecy. This is one of the things I love. The Bible confirms itself. You know, I, if we think of this book wrongly, like one person sat down one, way, one day and wrote the story, prophecy is kind of meaningless. Cause it's like, well, yeah, he wrote it in that chapter there and then he made it happen in this chapter here. That's not prophecy, but that's not what the Bible is. The Bible was compiled over 1,500, 1,600 years and written by over 40 different people. Many of them never even meeting each other. And yet there are things that are talked about that then get fulfilled later and couldn't possibly be predicted by just a person guessing. The the very prophecies that are fulfilled within scripture point to the idea that there was a God behind it who, you know, lives outside of time and sees the beginning from the end. There's some really cool examples of this. Micah 5 verse two predicts the birthplace of Jesus. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have any control over where he was gonna be born hey, mom, knock, knock, (laughs) want to head over to Bethlehem? (laughs) Not only that, think about this. It's not just that Micah predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. Do you realize that Joseph and Mary were not living in Bethlehem? So God used the Roman emperor at the time to decide he wanted more money. He let the greed of the Roman emperor dictate, I wanna make sure I'm taxing everybody, right? We're doing a census. I wanna know who all's out there making money so I can make sure I'm getting what's coming to me and uses that to create a census that required people to go back to their hometowns, which meant Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem right when she's due to give birth to Jesus. That's prophecy fulfilled, okay? There's a really cool one that I don't have time to unpack in Daniel chapter 9 we're actually coming up on the celebration of this. But in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel gets this prophecy about when the arrival of the coming Messiah will be. And because of how exact um, the book of Daniel is, and because we know historically King Cyrus, who was reigning at that time, Daniel points to a specific historical moment in time when King Cyrus declares something And then says from that date until the time the Messiah comes is this many number of days. And to that date is the moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and he was declaring, this is the day that the Lord has appointed. And Jerusalem's prophets missed it. Jesus weeps over the city because they miss the day of their visitation when their savior comes riding in to arrange for their rescue and salvation. That's just two. The scripture's filled with this stuff. All right, so prophecy supports this. Um, I love this. The harmony of the Bible. The harmony of the Bible. Think about the fact that 40 different people living in range from about 1,600 years apart from one another and everywhere in between, different backgrounds, different experiences, wrote these things that that God inspired them to write. And it's all in agreement. It tells one cohesive story about the God of the universe who made us, created us, and is now working to redeem us through the person of Jesus Christ. Man, you can't get two people in a room who know each other to agree. I mean, me and my wife are relatively the same age. We're a couple of white people living in Knoxville and we don't agree much less people from different ages and cultures and backgrounds. Like, you understand what I'm saying? It it doesn't make any sense unless there's a God who stands above it all, communicating his heart to people and inspiring them to write the very words of God. But you know what the most important is of all? It's the personal witness. You know why I believe that the Bible is real? Because it has been real to me because I have watched God speak to me through his word. Listen, I I don't stand up here and act like it's easy. And there are things, there's things that used to be hard for me to understand that I understand better now, and there's things I'm still wrestling with. It's like, God, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm not sure about that. Why is that in there? Why do you say that like that? But there is a personal witness from God's word because it's alive and because he's alive and he speaks to us. I got to tell you cannot be denied. I, I want to read a, a brief passage to you. This is about the life of Billy Graham. I love this story. Um, if I can find it now. thought I had the page. There it is. This is from a really great book. I, I'd encourage you guys to read it. It's, it's, it's thick. It's a big read, but it's called Streams of Living Water by Richard Foster, where he's mapping kind of these different streams of the Christian faith and how truthfully they all flow from one stream and how we kind of need each other instead of dividing and separating so much. But within that, he recaps the, some of the life of Billy Graham, and I want to read this to you. Billy had to face the issue of the Bible as the focus of his life again, just prior to the famous 1949 Los Angeles Crusade. Chuck Templeton, a close friend and able preacher in his own right, had been attending Princeton Seminary and was challenging some of Graham's most cherished beliefs about the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. Graham indicated little inclination or patience for abstract intellectualism. I'm with you, buddy. Bill Templeton reported, you cannot refuse to think to do that is to die intellectually. The rebuke stung and the debate in his soul to intensified. Finally, the issue came to head at Forest Home, a Christian retreat center in the San Bernardino Mountains near Los Angeles. Struggling over the intellectual questions his friend had raised, Billy went out alone into the pine forest to think and to pray. With his Bible spread open on a tree stump, he dropped to his knees. Oh God, he prayed. This is from his journal. There are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. But Father, I am going to accept this as thy word, by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts and I will believe this to be your inspired word. He rose from the ground, eyes stinging with tears, sensing the presence of God in a new and living way. This conscious resolution settled the battle in his soul and galvanized his faith. Since that day, the singular focus of biblical authority has given unusual power and authority to his preaching. I think that's without a doubt. That's a man who got before God and said, Lord, here's some things I see, here's some stuff I don't see and understand, and by faith, I'm choosing to take you at your word. The beauty of what happens when we do that is we find Jesus already there waiting for us. It's what we talked about last Sunday because he's already pursuing us. His truth is chasing us down. The risk of reading you too many quotes, I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. This is in a sermon of his that was titled, Truth is a Person. Because see, I'm not here to just convince you rigidly read and follow the Bible. I'm saying the Bible explains to us who our God is and how we can aim at him and hear him and follow him. And so A.W. Tozer says, let me say boldly that it is not the difficulty of discovering truth, but the unwillingness to obey it that makes it so rare among men. Our Lord said, I am the truth. And again, he said, the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost, aimless, or aiming wrongly. You know, that's what sin is. It's an archery term. It means missing the mark. It's missing the target. Truth, therefore, is not hard to find for the very reason that it is seeking us. So we learn that truth is not a thing for which we must search, but a person to whom we must hearken. In the New Testament, multitudes came to Jesus for physical help, but only rarely did one seek him out to learn the truth. The whole picture in the gospels is one of a seeking savior, not of seeking men. The truth was hunting for those who would receive it and relatively few did. For many are called, but few are chosen. The truth is a person. And the reason we use the Bible as our aim is to know the God of the Bible, the Jesus who is the living word and we can know him and follow him when we aim rightly, when we choose to walk by faith and not by sight and take him at his word and watch what happens. That's what's available to us. I wanna close this morning. I'm not really gonna explain it. I might point out one or two things, but I wanna remind us of a story found in 1 Samuel. You know, last week, we looked at Gideon. You know, we talked about how in Hebrews 11, it tells some stories and then it gets down to about verse 32. And it says, there's a whole bunch of other folks we don't have time to talk about. And I joked, we do, we do in this series. That's what we're gonna do in this series. And so we looked at Gideon last week. I wanna give you a little nugget on Samuel who was also referred to in Hebrews 11:32. 32. And so at the start of Samuel's young life, he is living at the temple and um, the priest Eli is helping to raise him. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3. For time's sake, I'm just going to read a couple of the verses in here, starting in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. Same word, same word. You know what? That could be said of our day too. It's it's rare in our day for people to hear the voice of God and follow him, but he's available. We have a lot of Eli's in our life who are broken. Eli was a broken priest. His sons were off track. He had messed up, but Samuel was kind of following under him. And then in verse four, it says, then the Lord called Samuel, this is at night while he's sleeping. Then the Lord called Samuel And he said, Samuel said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. This is my note here. This continues several times, this back and forth. He hears God's voice. He doesn't realize it's God. He runs to Eli. Eli's like, dude, I didn't call you. Let me get some sleep. Go back to bed. And finally, in verse eight, the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called for me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Calling him by name, Alex. Just talking about that in worship this morning. He called him by name. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Samuel responded to the voice of God with a humble mentality that says, you speak, I'll listen. You speak, I'll listen. Romans 7 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we can have enough faith to trust, to listen to his word, as we listen to his word, it establishes more faith and it builds and it grows on itself. I wanted to kind of close by just sharing like three or four sentences and I rarely just kind of read my thoughts off of a page. I'm usually just kind of of speak and let it come out, but I really wanted to say this a specific way. And so, I just wanna say this in closing and then we'll pray and get out of here. Um, I just wanna say that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm devoting my life to Jesus and his words, to believing in the good heavenly father that Jesus loved and followed to his death. And I'm choosing to believe that I can listen and follow the Holy Spirit who was promised by Jesus for those who would believe. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe that's not real. But if I'm wrong, I cannot think of a better aim to have, a better road to walk, or a better companion to guide me on my way. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't believe Jesus is wrong. I believe he's right. And I don't have enough faith to discount him. He believed in the God of the Bible. He fulfilled what the God of the Bible said he would fulfill. Yeah. And I choose to believe that he's real and that he exists and that his word has been, been treasured and, and come down through the ages to me today and that I get to hold a precious gift, which is the very words of God that give me aim and direction in the midst of a world that is broken and aimless and gone mad. And I choose to follow and believe him and take him at his word. I'll bank my life on that. And my, my hope for his people is that we would not let the word of God be diminished in our eyes or robbed from us, but that we would choose to have faith and believe that God is who he says he is, that he loves us, that he's for us, and that we can know him and walk with him on our journey home. That's my hope and prayer for us. So Jesus... We humble ourselves before you. God, we acknowledge our inherent blindness. We acknowledge that we don't have eyes to see the unseen. God, we acknowledge that we are aimless at times or we aim at the wrong thing. God, we acknowledge sometimes we're aiming right and we still miss. But God, I thank you that by faith, we can choose to follow you and to look to you for our direction, our guidance, and our aim towards home. And so, Jesus, we humble ourselves, and we adopt the posture of Samuel. We say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And we intend to follow and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.